0: We uh, study the Scriptures here, and we ask the Lord to speak to all of us out of them. And uh, today is no different. In our fifth our fifth study of God's Word uh, under a um, title, a series entitled, A Charge to Keep, we'll look at uh, what the Lord would have for us today. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Jesus is speaking, "Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come to a, <clears throat> I've not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven." But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This week I read about an elderly couple by the name of Ed and Norma. They were at a state fair. And Ed looked over and saw a sign that said, helicopter rides, 50 bucks. He turned to Norma and he said, Norma, I'm an old man. I'll probably never get a chance to go up in a helicopter. What do you say? She says to him, you're crazy. 50 bucks is 50 bucks. Standing right next to them was the uh, pilot and he overheard this conversation. He turned to them and said, I got a deal for you. If you remain absolutely silent, I'll take both of you up for a helicopter ride. What do you say? Ed looks at Norma. Norma looks at Ed. They smile and say, let's go. They get on board, they strap themselves in, and immediately the pilot takes off and takes them on the ride of their lives. He does loops, he uh, goes upside down several times, he does steep dives, and when they land... The pilot says to Ed, i got to hand it to you, I didn't hear a peep out of you. And Ed said, well, I almost said something when Norma fell out, but 50 bucks is 50 bucks. Now of all the things that Matthew tells us and says about Jesus, there is nothing that he says that's more frequent than Jesus is a preacher. In fact, five times in his gospel, he puts together all of Jesus' teaching into five sections and we have the first one and we call it the Sermon on the Mount. We started our series five weeks ago looking at the commands of Christ, and it's interesting, every single command that we've underlined is out of Matthew's gospel. And this today is no different, and Jesus says to all who are listening, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that command, that observation has caused many sleepless nights for Christians throughout the centuries. One British commentator says, it is indeed a, a hard saying. Mark Twain used to say, it's not the things in the Bible that I don't understand that trouble me, it's the things that I do. And yet I bet Mark Twain had no idea what Jesus means when he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. See, the Jews had a saying. The saying was this, if two men ever enter heaven, one will be a scribe and the other a Pharisee. So what does Jesus mean when he says, unless our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees? The scribes and the Pharisees were Jews who knew the law. They had developed a legal code based on the law. They were observers of the law. They set a high bar when it came to morality. So what in the world does Jesus mean when He says, you have no hope unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees? That's the question before us today. Let's dig in. First of all, notice the pronouncement. Look at verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Years ago, I remember talking to a man who had trouble with the Bible and its authority. Not only did he have trouble with the authority of the Bible, he had problems with specific things that were said in the Bible. For instance, he said to me, what kind of God would threaten his people to kill their firstborn unless they killed thousands of lambs and then painted the lamb's blood on their doors? What kind of God would do that? You know what I said to him? The same kind of God who would kill his only begotten son and paint His blood all over the lives of His people to cleanse them from their sins. Now that fact is at the center of Matthew's gospel. More than any other gospel writer, Matthew sees Jesus as the greater Moses. He sees a parallel between the God of Moses and the God of Jesus. I mean, think of it. In Matthew's Gospel, it's the only Gospel that has the story of Jesus as a little child where His parents take Him into Egypt to escape the slaughter. Just like Moses was in Egypt as an infant and He escaped the slaughter. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is delivered out of Egypt. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is delivered just as Moses was out of Egypt. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus goes through the waters of baptism, just like Moses went through the waters of the Red Sea. Just as Moses fasted in the wilderness for 40 days, so did Jesus. Just as Moses ascended a mountain to get the old covenant law of God, Jesus ascends to a mountain to give the new covenant law of God. Just as Moses was delivered, or delivered the Old Testament law with its curses, Jesus delivers the new covenant law with its blessings. Just as Moses offered to God his own life as a substitute for the sin of his people to gain the the, uh, forgiveness of God, so Jesus offers himself on the cross as a substitute for the eternal consequences of our sin. Just as Moses took 12 tribes and 70 elders and fashioned a nation, Jesus takes 12 disciples and 70 others and fashions a bride and gives her all of the authority that he possesses. Now, this is no no coincidence. To Matthew, Jesus is the greater Moses. He's not only the mediator of the new covenant, he is the progenitor of a new people. Called his church. And it's his church that he will feed and he will lead and he will fulfill all the requirements God has placed on them. That's what Jesus means when he says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets, but rather I've come to fulfill them. Second, notice his point. Look at verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The smallest letter in Hebrew is called an iud. The smallest, oh, it's about the size of an apostrophe. The smallest marking is called a seraph. And it's about the size of the right or left side of the capital I. It's that little dash. And what Jesus is saying is, I tell you, not even the least marking of the law will pass away until all of it's fulfilled or accomplished. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, when He says, I tell you the truth, He's saying, I stake my life on this fact. Not one little stroke of the pen will pass away until it's all accomplished. You know that word accomplished or fulfilled? you know what that means in Hebrew? It means a net of fish that is so full that not one more fish can be put in that net. That's what it means to be accomplished. It means a hole in the ground that is leveled up with soil. And it's leveled up to such an extent that you can't even tell where the hole was. That's what it means to be, to accomplish it means to complete a task so thoroughly that nothing remains but enjoyment and that's what jesus is saying about the law he's saying exactly what paul says when paul says for christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes if you ever considered the word end in english it has seven different meanings if you like football you know there's a split end or a tight end. Sometimes we talk about someone who comes to the end of their lives and they're talking about death and it says he's met his end. Sometimes we talk about taking a certain bargain and keeping your end of it. Sometimes we talk about a cessation of action, like the end of a war. But look how Paul uses it, same way Jesus uses it. He says that Jesus has made an end of the law for every believer. You know what that means? What Jesus is saying is the goal of every believer is the law fulfilled. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by our sinful nature... God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful men as a sin offering, so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who live not according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit of God. Now, Paul uses the word righteousness there as an adjective, the righteous requirements. And in doing that, Paul is is telling us what the Old Testament tells us over and over again, and that is the definition of righteousness. Most of us, when we think of that word righteousness, we mean private moral behavior. But more than 200 times in the Old Testament, the word righteousness is used far differently than that. It literally means to conduct yourself appropriately in terms of your relationships, your relationship with God and with others. And what Paul is saying is that everything the law requires of us Jesus has accomplished, and now it is the job of the Holy Spirit to give us all of the benefits of those who've received the accomplishments of Christ. Third, notice the practice. Look at verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, what commandments is he talking about? For years, I thought he was talking about the commandments, the ten of them in, in Exodus chapter 20. When he says, whoever practices these commandments and teaches others, that person will be called great in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever doesn't practice them, whoever teaches others not to obey them, will be called least." What commandments is he talking about? He's talking about the commandments he's giving in this sermon. And when you look at those commandments, they all involve relationships. Listen to what Paul says to the Galatians in chapter 6. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you may be tempted, Carry each other's burdens, and in this way, fulfill the law of Christ. Paul says, fulfill the law of Christ. That's how the early church talked about living the Christian life. Like bearing one another's burdens. And where did they hear this law? Where did they read this law? Where did they study this law? right here in this sermon. One time a young seminary student was um, in a class with a professor. He was so impressed by this professor, he took not one class from him, but five. Nobody taught him like this professor did. One night he's coming back from the library in the wee hours of the night and he notices the professor's house and there's a light on in what he suspects is the professor's den. So the next morning he says, Sir, You've taught for many years, and yet I passed your house last night and I saw a light on. Was that light on in your den? He said, Yes. Were you studying? The professor said, Yes. He said, Why after all these years do you study? He said, Because I'd rather have my students drinking from a flowing stream rather than a stagnant pool. That's what Jesus means when he says, On the mountain. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm telling you the truth. As you live by the Holy Spirit's power, you will gain greater and greater control of yourself and you will begin to fulfill All the commands that I've commanded you. Fourth, notice the product. Look at verse 20. For I tell you the truth, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, according to one Roman historian, there were 6,000 Pharisees in Palestine at the time of Christ. And whenever you look at their lives as detailed in the Gospels, and you ask yourself, what kind of righteousness do they exhibit? The Bible talks about it in three ways. First of all, the scribes and the Pharisees have an external righteousness. In other words, it consists of outward appearance and practice. They seem to be doing the right things. They seem to be abiding by the law in terms of its letter. Second, not only is it external, it's also partial. One time Jesus said to the Pharisees, you tithe your spices, but the waiter ma- the waiter or the sorry the weightier matters of the law you ignore. Like loving your neighbor, humbling yourself before God. So it's external, it's partial. And it also is self-focused. Rather than being motivated out of a desire to bring glory and honor to God, they're motivated out of bringing glory and honor to themselves. Jesus said, you wear long faces when you fast. Jesus said, you give your gifts to the poor publicly. And what Jesus says is, in the face of their righteousness... Unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you'll not see the kingdom of heaven. In other words, unless your righteousness is something other than external and partial and self-focused, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. So what other kind of righteousness is there? Well, the Bible talks about three. First of all, it talks about inherent righteousness. Righteousness. That's like Adam and Eve before they sinned. There was no disharmony. Every relationship they had with God, with themselves, with each other, with nature, all of that was perfect. So therefore, Jesus can't possibly mean unless your inherent righteousness is greater than the scribes and the Pharisees because none of us have that. Second, Jesus talked about imputed righteousness. It's the righteousness that Jesus gained by living sinlessly before the cross and He also gained it by living passively on the cross. Theologians call that the active and passive obedience of Jesus. And what the Bible tells us is everyone who is in Christ has received the imputed righteousness of of, uh, God. He God now sees us in Christ as perfect. And therefore, many people come to this text and they say, oh, that's the kind of righteousness Jesus is talking about. Unless you've received my imputed righteousness, you'll not see the kingdom of heaven. But there's a problem with that. And the problem is that Jesus talks about it as a way of life. He talks about teaching this righteous living and keeping it or practicing it so he must be talking about another kind of righteousness and the answer or the the truth is he is and that is the imparted righteousness that we can receive it's a righteousness that the holy spirit brings with him into the life of the believer it's the kind of righteousness you begin to see in your life as the holy spirit begins to get his way with you it's not external it's internal it's not partial, it's thoroughgoing. It's not focused on you, it's focused on God and others. Do you want some examples of this imparted righteousness? Well, let me give you one. Peter. In the book of Acts, Peter describes the time that Judas complained when Mary came to Jesus' feet and broke up open that alabaster flask of ointment and anointed his feet. Remember what Judas said? This is a waste. It could have been sold and the proceeds given to the poor. Do you know how Peter describes that in the book of Acts? He says it this way, there were some there who said, why wasn't this ointment sold and given to the poor? Think of it. He doesn't name Judas. All the other gospel writers name it Name this person as Judas, but not Peter. You know why? Because Peter is too focused on his own sin to point to the sin of someone else. You file that under righteousness. You want another example? Sure you do. Paul. Before the Holy Spirit enters his life, Paul would describe himself as, as to the law, righteous, blameless. but after the Holy Spirit enters his life and begins to get his way with him, you know how Paul describes himself? I'm the chief of sinners. You want another example? James. Remember when James walked with Jesus during the gospel time and he said to Jesus, may I sit on your right hand Well, decades after the Holy Spirit had engaged in James' life, you know what James does? He lays down his life for his friends. Augustine once said, the law was given that grace might be sought. Grace was given so the demands of the law might be met. In other words, there's only one way to gain the righteousness that Jesus is talking about. There's only one way that you can be able to say to yourself or someone else, your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, and that is if the Holy Spirit is getting His way with you. And the way He gets His way with you is by asking Him to change your heart so that you care little about the external. So that your righteousness, your right relationships extend beyond the partial. So that your focus is on Jesus and pleasing Him. Because after all, that's the end game of every Christian. That's your goal. Think about that. Amen.